Good morning, everyone. Uh, so this morning, we're going to be continuing through the first two chapters of the book of Acts. Um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I've heard Acts chapters 1 and 2, particularly chapter 2, as the hub of the Bible. And a hub is like the center of a wheel. It's like the center of all movement. Um, it can be like the center of all activity related to like an organization. Um, everything before Acts chapters 1 and 2 really is pointing forward to the events that happen in this chapter. And then everything that happens afterward really looks back and relies on the events that happened in these chapters. So it's difficult to overstate the importance of having a very firm grasp on what God does here and the events that take place here. So the goal of this lesson is to just try to walk through Acts chapters 1 and 2 very very simply and to equip us not only to understand the lessons and the principles that are in these events, but to also equip us to feel more comfortable maybe teaching others about some very fundamental concepts to God's kingdom and our faith. So this lesson is going to be in where we read in the scripture reading. And the title of this lesson is Addition. And um, it should be pretty self-explanatory why that is, because they're adding in another apostle to replace Judas. And so like I said, we're just going to be walking through the, the scripture here and just progressively making points as we read. So we're going to start in verses 12 through 17 and focus on what they were doing when they came to Jerusalem and were staying together in the upper room. Remember in the first 11 verses what was happening? So at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's been appearing to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And he's been speaking at the end of verse 3 about things pertaining to the kingdom. And in verse 4, he gathered the apostles together and told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise that was made that the Spirit would be poured out upon them. And what he had told them to do was to go to Jerusalem specifically, and in that city, the pouring out of the Spirit would begin this movement of Christianity and spread it to the ends of the earth. Uh, Just one thing on that, um, the the title of this series is The Beginning of the End. Uh, Just really quickly, Acts 2, verse 17. uh, The beginning of the end comes from the quote from Joel, it shall be in the last days that these things would happen. Um, A lot of times you'll hear people in the world Um, misunderstand what the Bible means when it's talking about the last days. People say like, well, the world is in such chaos, we must now be in the last days, or these are the signs of the last days. When actually, the sign of the last days began in Acts chapter 2 with the pouring out of the Spirit, what the apostles were told to wait for. And when God uses that term last days, what he means is it is the final dispensation of time. And the final dispensation of time began with the pouring out of his Spirit in Jerusalem with the apostles. So that's where we're working towards with these events. But for now, in verse 12, we'll read through verse 17 to begin. When they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, 
Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. So very simply, who do we have here at the beginning of these events? You have first the 11 apostles who are named there in verse 13. So remember, as the chapter progresses, we're going to be considering Judas, but now you have 11 apostles. And you remember from the last lesson in the series, from the beginning of the chapter, we talked about how apostles are men who are chosen by Jesus individually for a specific task, for a specific work. And Jesus is the one who named them apostles. So now there's 11. And again, if you want to know who these 11 are, verse 13 names them each one by one. You have also the women. In Luke 24, it lists who probably are the women. You've got a couple Marys who are not the mother of Jesus. For instance, Mary Magdalene. You have Joanna. And then you just have a a few women who are very dedicated to Jesus, who seems like they're constantly present. Jesus' mother Mary and also Jesus' physical brothers. So his brothers are also named in other places, one of which is James, who seems to have written uh, the letter that we're actually studying on Sunday afternoons, James. So they're in Jerusalem now. They're waiting in this upper room. And what they're doing is, again, they're, they're waiting for this promise. But how are they waiting? I would argue that they're spending their time as productively as they could have possibly have used it. And when I think you see waiting in God's word and what waiting means, it may be a little bit different than what might automatically come to your mind when you think about waiting for something. Um, For instance, when you think about waiting in line, you're just kind of there like kicking your feet and twiddling your fingers and just waiting for your turn, right? But in the Bible, the idea of waiting is a very active and, and alert anticipation for something. So, for instance, when God's word will talk about awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus, coming in the sky, coming for judgment, that's always referenced to people who are awake, they're alert, they're very actively anticipating this event. And so waiting is not just a leisure, passive thing in God's word. It's it's a very active and alert anticipation. But still... How were they staying active and alert while they were anticipating this promise they were told to wait for? Well, look at verse 14. They were with one mind, devoting themselves to prayer. And I think verse 15 uh, implies that along with prayer, they were also studying scripture and studying it very diligently with much purpose to consider what to do in the meantime, right? But they were devoted to prayer, and I just want to make a couple very simple points that I think are in this. One of the important aspects of prayer in our life is prayer has a utility in our relationship with God, a very essential utility, and I think you see this here, that prayer opens our eyes to see, right? And this is really what you see in the Psalms. This is what you see even Paul the Apostle praying for churches, He would pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know God and to know things about God and your relationship with God. And so prayer opens our eyes to see. And in devoting themselves to prayer, their eyes were open to see God. Their eyes were open to the scripture. Their eyes were open to waiting with alertness for what God would do. I think a way to think about this, imagine if you're watching a movie, right? 
And there's a lot of things that are happening in the movie and maybe like you're tempted to get up and walk away, but it's like you don't even want to blink because you may miss a detail that you don't want to miss if you were to get up and walk away. And I think it's the same with prayer in the Bible and the Psalms is they don't want to miss a detail. And so they're very active in prayer together because they want their eyes to be open. But secondly, with opening our eyes to see, prayer also prepares our hearts to act through faith, right? There's a lot that God calls us to do that unless our hearts are being prepared through prayer, we're really not going to have the will or the courage by faith to act on those convictions. There's many things that God calls us to do that are sacrificial and difficult. And it really demands faith to see on the other side of the sacrifice to know that God will provide, God will bless us in what we're doing, even if it's painful in the moment, or even pursuing joy in tribulation and trials. And so they weren't just wanting their eyes to be open to see, they were wanting to have their hearts prepared to take action. And I think you see that not only here with the decisions they make with Judas and replacing him, but also in chapter 2, that they were prepared for sober-minded spiritual action as a result of their devotion to prayer. So just one very simple application. This is something that I'm, I'm really struggling with and just trying to implement better. Um, but I think we need to really take consideration to take more initiative to bring up praying together when we're spending time together. I don't think prayer always needs to be this uh, planned ahead of time event, but when we're spending time together, we can be taking initiative to make time to pray together while we're together. It doesn't have to be this long thing that we have to worry about how much time it's going to take when we <laughs> bend down and pray. Not that that should be a deterrence by any means anyway. But we just need to get into habits of spending our time in spiritually meaningful ways, in ways that follow this example, right? So I would just urge you to consider that, that God wants us to be taking the initiative to make time for prayer when we're together and to make that a priority in our relationships together. And then lastly with this section, Peter stands up and he brings up that the scripture had to be fulfilled with the, which the Holy Spirit foretold by David's mouth. I think there's some things here about just the generality of how inspiration works. Obviously, David wrote down these scriptures, but it was the Holy Spirit who spoke and communicated these things. I just want to take a moment to deal with what I think is a very significant role that we see with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And it may not be a role that immediately comes to your mind. Remember a couple weeks ago I had mentioned in this series in the beginning of Acts, we were going to spend time trying to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. I think we see a lot of things said about the Holy Spirit that clarify things with his role. And so here's something that I think, again, you may not immediately think of, but I think is actually very important and a very central role of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to say what's on the board first, and then I'd like to prove with examples what's on the board here. That the Holy Spirit's role, or a role, this doesn't encompass necessarily everything that we see about the Holy Spirit, but a role of the Holy Spirit is to convey God's kingdom by communicating and connecting Scripture to convict the heart. So the idea of conveying God's kingdom would be God's judgments, his justice, the rule of Jesus. Think about Judas in betraying the king of God's kingdom and his fate. 
and bringing God's kingdom into a more tangible, understandable reality, right? But how the Spirit does this is by communicating and connecting Scripture, but not just in a sense that is impersonal. The goal is always convict the heart. So here are some examples that I think maybe deal with this from different angles. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to start with John the Baptist and some things that are said about John the Baptist that relate to this point. So just remember, we're dealing with the Holy Spirit's role to convey God's kingdom by communicating and connecting Scripture to convict the heart. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Here's something that's said about John the Baptist before he was born. So Zacharias, uh, John the Baptist's father, is told this. He says, For he, and that's John the Baptist, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So here's a question I have for you. Did John the Baptist ever perform a single miracle? And think, was John the Baptist, was his role to help people to see who Jesus would really be? So John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit, never performed a miracle. But what did he do? John the Baptist conveyed God's kingdom he communicated and connected scripture from the Old Testament to the people he was preaching to to convict the heart. John's message was very simple. It was rooted very clearly in the Old Testament and the mission was to convict people to repentance. Very simple. Turn to Luke chapter 4. We actually see this in our introduction to Jesus' ministry in this gospel. Turn to Luke chapter 4 and look at verse 14 and 15. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. So again, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel. Jesus has just come out of the wilderness after being tempted by Satan for 40 days, and here's the next thing he does. And Jesus returned to Galilee, notice this, in the power of the Spirit, And news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Is it reasonable to imply here that in verse 14, whatever Jesus is about to do is going to demonstrate the power of the Spirit? Well, what did Jesus do? Look just a little further. I'm going to just generally talk about some things here. In verse 17 through 19, Jesus quoted an Old Testament passage that was related to his role in God's kingdom and bringing his kingdom. After Jesus quotes that this scripture in verse 21 has been fulfilled in their hearing, in verse 23 through 27, he continues to connect that scripture to them. And he uses more Old Testament illustrations to convict them. And this drives them to such a rage in verse 21 or 28 through 30, that they try to throw him off the cliff where their city was built. Jesus did not perform a miracle here. But was this the power of the Spirit? And if it is, what was it? By the power of the Spirit, Jesus conveyed God's kingdom 
by communicating and connecting Scripture to convict the hearts of the listeners. We see this in the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 8 as well. This will be the last example we'll look at, but I'll just very quickly after this one just reference just one more really quick. Acts chapter 4, so now here are the apostles uh, being taken before the Jewish leadership because of their teaching. And verse 8, notice Acts chapter 4, verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so based on the world's understanding generally of the Holy Spirit, what you may expect now is, well, Peter's going to perform some miracle in front of their eyes and amaze them. But continue reading said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is, and note, this is a quotation from the Old Testament, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. What did Peter do here? He conveyed God's kingdom by communicating and connecting scripture to convict their hearts. Very simple. So I just want to put that forward. I would urge you to consider that. I think that's one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit that we see in the New Testament. And I think it's very helpful to see examples of that and to have that clarified. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1. Oh, I mentioned that I would briefly allude to another example, Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Uh, At the end of Acts chapter 6, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you know the book of Acts, you know that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen spends a long time giving the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And Stephen connects scripture communicating God's kingdom, and at the end of his speech is willing to die for convicting their hearts. So again, what was the evidence of Stephen having the Holy Spirit? Although he did do miracles in Acts chapter 6, in that context, the conviction did not come through the miracles. It came through the communication, the connection of Scripture to convict their hearts. Acts chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. So in talking about Judas, now it says, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So what happened to Judas? Some of the things in here are pretty self-explanatory, but I think it might be helpful just to review very briefly the events of Judas's life. So for one, Judas was chosen by Jesus as an apostle, just as Peter was, just as Matthew was. Just in the same way all the apostles were treated by Jesus, Judas was treated in the same way. He was one of Jesus's closest friends. That cannot be overstated enough. Judas was one of Jesus's closest friends confidants, his closest friends. Jesus invested the most in Judas and his companions who were apostles. John chapter 6, 70 through 71, I'll put this verse on the board. But Judas lost his heart entirely to Satan while walking with Jesus. Uh, In John 6, 
70 through 71, Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples, when ironically they didn't walk away from him when others did, Jesus answered them, did I, not, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And this is not on the brink of his last week of life in Jerusalem. And so, although Judas had not walked away from Jesus physically, he had already walked away from Jesus in his heart. He was long gone by this point. And as things continued, in Matthew 26, Jesus confers with the chief priests and the leadership in Jerusalem. He agrees famously to fulfill scripture and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which, side note, is the price. In the law of Moses and Exodus, it's the price of a dead slave who was killed by an ox. So for that much money, he betrays Jesus, who had spent all of this time with him, investing in him. And he acted on that intention after Jesus had just washed his feet. Jesus takes his disciples together for a very intimate time, very loving time, to wash their feet, to instruct them to follow in his example, to love others as he's loved them. He's eating with Judas. He hands Judas a piece of bread. And it's just a last chance. Wake up and see what's going on. He takes the bread. He leaves to betray Jesus. His heart was completely gone. Matthew 27, 33 through 10. When Jesus was condemned, Judas returns the silver. He throws it back. And then he goes to hang himself. If you're still in verse, or Acts chapter 1, verse 19, uh, or verse 18, rather, you notice what seems to have happened here. So, I may not be seeing this clearly. If you have a different perspective of this, um, you might be right and I might be misunderstanding. But how it seems to me is Judas's attempt to hang himself, it failed. And so instead of just hanging there until he died, something happened and Judas fell. And when he fell, his midsection was cut open entirely. And it mentions that his intestines gushed out of his body. And this became a very well-known thing that happened here. And after this happened, the money was used to buy a graveyard. So in Matthew, uh, 20, Matthew 27, it mentions that strangers were buried there. So uh, verse 20, let his homestead be made desolate. The idea is nobody is going to want to inherit what Judas left behind. It is something desolate and nobody is going to dwell in it. But... Let another man take his office, which he abandoned, which is the office of an apostle. I want to spend just a minute, though, what these prophecies that they're referring to, what they say about Judas. I think it's important to see this, and I think it's, it's important to wrestle with what we see here, because we're going to see some things in the Psalms that if you haven't read them before, you may find very uncomfortable and very shocking but before we, we're going to read Psalm 109 in its entirety. Um, I timed it the other day, and it takes about three minutes to read through it. So I'd like to spend three minutes reading Psalm 109. But it's important to see this language. It's important to be confronted by how shocking it is. And I think it's important to understand the goodness of this language that's used in Psalm 109. And I think it's important to, to think with this, 
Judas is not given. The benefit of a doubt that I think sometimes is given, Judas is not given a benefit of a doubt by the Holy Spirit. Judas is not given the benefit of a doubt by this prophecy. Judas is not given the benefit of a doubt by the apostles or of Jesus in John chapter 6. So just keep that in mind. Psalm 109, verse 1. If you'd like to follow along and just think through the psalm with me. O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. That's what's quoted in Acts chapter 1. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. In a following generation, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off their memory from the earth. Because he did not remember to show loving kindness and persecuted the afflicted and needy man and the despondent in heart to put them to death. He also loved cursing, so it came to him. And he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. But he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, and it entered into his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him as a garment with which he covers himself, and for a belt with which he constantly girds himself. Let this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord and of those who speak evil against my soul. But you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake, Because your loving kindness is good, deliver me. For I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am passing like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like the locust. My knees are weak from fasting, and my flesh has grown lean without fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they see me, they wag their head. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your loving kindness. And let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, they shall be ashamed, but your servant shall be glad. Let my accusers be clothed with dishonor, and let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. With my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord, and in the midst of many I will praise him, for he stands at the right hand of the needy, to save him from those who judge his soul. So I think one of the first things to keep in mind, this language is actually very fundamental. If you remember in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, there was a promise that God made to Abraham. It's a fundamental promise that God follows through on through the entirety of God's history in working with his people. He said, I will bless those who bless you. And he and the one who curses you, I will curse. That's Psalm 109. 
Really, all David is doing is saying, God, you made this promise and you're faithful and fulfill the promise that you made. And so again, the language is very fundamental. And so the servant of the Lord here is praying to God to simply be faithful and true to his promises. And here's something to note very clearly. In verse 17, David is not speaking of somebody in innocent misunderstanding. He loved cursing. So it came to him. He clothed himself in verse 18 with cursing and it entered his body like water. And so this is not somebody who is just in an innocent misunderstanding. Here's somebody who is only receiving the reality and consequences of what he has been relentlessly pursuing. Is it just? In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, is it fair that at some point that it be just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict the righteous. Especially when it it is on the anointed one, on whom God's entire plan rests upon. So 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 says, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict the righteous. And notice as well in the psalm, David is not taking personal vengeance. And you can see very clearly he is not embittered, but is completely at peace to entrust all of this to the Lord. He's not looking for relief himself. Look at verse 21. Deal kindly with me for your namesake. Because of your loving kindness is good, deliver me. Look at verse 26. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your loving kindness and let them know that this is your hand. You, Lord, have done it. And so David is not speaking from an embittered heart, but rather simply out of God being faithful to his promises and helping people to see that sin comes with consequences that should deter us from turning away from the Lord. And finally, I I think something that can be very easy to forget, and this, I think, is the value of the cross and the Old Testament scriptures in their grittiness. The result of sin is gritty violence. And the only way that sin can end, the only way, is by violence. We need to be confronted with that reality. Why are the psalmists constantly begging God for deliverance? It's because they were suffering the violence of the sins of others. Why did Jesus need to suffer relentlessly on the cross? Because sin can only end by violence. Hebrews chapter 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. The only way for sin to end is by violence. Jesus took the violence of sin upon himself, but we must not forget that sin's end is violence. I commend that to you. Verse 21 through 26 of Acts chapter 1. 21 through 26. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, 
Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So this is going to be just focusing on how did they choose, or how did they decide who could be qualified to be chosen here as another apostle. It's very helpful just in terms of understanding the role of an apostle. Uh, It can be very helpful to navigate some things that kind of exist around us to really understand what's being said here. So again, the question is, how did they decide who could be qualified to be chosen as another apostle? Number one, if you look at verse 22, in order to be qualified to be considered as an apostle, this is someone who must have received John's baptism, John the Baptist. So this is somebody who needed to have heard John the Baptist preaching and they submitted to what he taught and was baptized by his baptism. Secondly, one verse back actually in verse 21, this is somebody who needed to accompany Jesus and the apostles for the entirety of his ministry. So I think it may be a way to understand that. What this means is not walking away from Jesus for a year, going back to normal life, and then coming back a year later, and then rejoining and seeing what's going on and continuing. In verse 21, the qualification is, this is somebody beginning with John the Baptist. This is somebody who followed Jesus the entirety of his ministry, beginning to end. Thirdly, in verse 22, the end of the verse, In order to be considered, this would have to be a person who witnessed Jesus after his resurrection. Who witnessed Jesus after his resurrection. So with all three of those, only two men in this time were considered. Two men. You have Joseph called Barsabbas, and you have Matthias. And of those two, only one was received. So it's not, well, we have two guys here, let's get them both. No, they're filling in one empty slot and one man was chosen. An obvious question, but it's helpful to ask this question. Can there be other apostles today? So sometimes, like you'll see on the board of a building where a church meets, we have apostle so-and-so, or this is our apostle, or apostles are visiting, date such and such. So you, you think about these three qualifications. Is it even possible for there to be other apostles today? Can somebody have received John the Baptist's baptism? Can somebody have followed Jesus for the entirety of his physical ministry and witnessed his resurrection? I mean, unless they're 2,000 years old and immortal, I don't think that's going to work. So it's just, it's actually impossible. The work and the role of the apostles is a closed office. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have apostles today. Because just like we have founding fathers of this country, but they're the same founding fathers who existed in the time when the Declaration was written and all that stuff. We still have apostles, but they're the same apostles who wrote scripture for us to be our foundation, right? It's just that there's not other apostles beyond this time frame, beyond the Apostle Paul, who within this generation would also be selected by Jesus. So how is Matthias chosen? Uh, Just very quickly, they prayerfully entrusted this decision to the Lord, and they did this in a way that may seem very unusual, But first they prayed and they entrusted this to God, to Jesus, to again choose himself who it was. 
And in Leviticus 16.89, you see casting lots is oftentimes in the Old Testament. It's a way of leaving a significant decision up to the Lord. And I don't think this means that like we roll dice now if like we're wondering about what job to get or anything like that. But this obviously, the choosing of an apostle was a pretty significant decision for them to be making here. And so not only do they prayerfully leave it to the Lord, but they use a practice that in their, their law and in their history was associated with allowing God to make the decision. And in 26, the decision was made and the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the 11. So now once again, there are 12 apostles, just as the number 12 would oftentimes signify 12 tribes of Israel. So it's again, uh, the number 12, the apostles and their work can begin again. So some final principles very briefly here, just to conclude the lesson. Really have two things. This is something that may be helpful. Um, And again, I just commend it to you to think on. The apostles loved Judas. The closest friends I've had have been friends that spent a lot of time with me. The apostles spent all of their time together. You know, and they weren't living through Jesus' ministry and constant suspicion of Judas, but rather they loved him very dearly. But they still allowed God's judgment to define Judas and how to respond to his decision. And I think that's significant. And I think maybe another way to think about this is if you turn to Romans chapter 9, I think we see this also in Paul, the apostle, in his heart toward the Jews who are unbelieving. Because the idea that I'm conveying here as a principle is that inevitably this will add sorrow and grief into our hearts to accept that there may be people we love very dearly who may have decided to turn away from the Lord. How do we handle that grief? The apostles did not handle it in compromise. They handled it in grief and faith. Romans 9, 1 through 5. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Look again at verse three. What was Paul's wish here? Have you ever wanted somebody to be saved so badly that you would honestly go to hell for them? And in verse 1, Paul is making it clear this isn't a bold exaggeration. What he's saying is, if this were possible, if somehow this would open up a way for salvation for somebody, I'll go to hell for them. Can you imagine the sorrow and the love involved in that kind of wish? I can't imagine loving somebody like this. Second principle. Turn a couple pages over. That's Romans 11:17 through 22. Returning back to what was said about Judas, and in principle of Matthias being able to become an apostle, place of Judas, there's actually a similar principle stated about us and our relationship to God and his kingdom. The Jewish nation, their relationship with God being the chosen elected group, for the gates to be open to the Gentiles... There needed to be violence, 
blood and sacrifice for us to be able to be grafted into God's kingdom. And that should impact us. We ought to be fearfully thankful that what God has had to do in his judgment is lose countless souls through violence to give us access into his kingdom. Verse 17 through 22, and the lesson will be yours, Romans 11. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. I commend these things to you, and if there's anything that we can do for you to help you spiritually this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.